Genesis chapter 22, probably a familiar story for most of you that you've heard before. Um, if any time in Sunday school or children's church, you've heard the story about Isaac and Abraham and how Abraham went through the motions of sacrificing all the way to the point of where he was going to slay Isaac on the altar of his son. God stopped it from happening. If you know the story, you know that it has a good ending. There's no really easy way to introduce Genesis 22. I will say this, however, it's worth noting that the greatest test in the life of Abraham came after God had fulfilled the greatest promise in Abraham's life. You know how mountaintop experiences often are followed by those hard valleys of life, those hard decisions. And Abraham and Sarah had to wait years for the promised son. If you were to go back to Genesis chapter 12 and you were to read the text there, you would realize that when God called Abraham and Sarah, his wife, to go to the land that God would eventually give to them, the promised land, they were 75, excuse me, Abraham was 75 years old. So he got to the promised land. Isaac, the promised son, was not born until Abraham was 99 years old. 24 years of waiting for God to fulfill his promise to them. And now years later, in this text, in Genesis 22, it seems that God wants to take away the very thing that they prayed for and they waited for and they hoped for and they watched for and they anticipated for all those years. And no doubt Abraham's faith in this passage shines brightly. But instead of focusing on the faith of Abraham, which you know this passage clearly teaches and we'll reference it from time to time, I want to focus on verse 14. And specifically, I want to focus on that phrase, the Lord will provide. And this morning, I want to ask some questions about God's provision in the life of Abraham. And hopefully, we'll be able to see how God provides in our own lives as well. So you have your place there in Genesis chapter 22. Let's read this small section of Scripture. Genesis 22, and look what it says here in verse 1. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abram. And he said, here I am. Then he said, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abram arose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abram said to his young man, Stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. Verse 6. So Abram took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on, the, um, excuse me, and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took the fire in his hand, or the torch, and a knife. And the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham his father and said, My father... And he said, Here am I, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built an altar there and placed wood in order. And he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay 
his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay a hand or lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear, fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there was behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its thorns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abram called the place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, and the mountain of the Lord, it shall be provided. This morning, as we kind of go through this text, I want to go through this text in asking some questions. Um, it's like going back to English class and having to ask all those who, what, why, when, where questions when you were doing an assignment and you were doing a paper or doing an essay or, 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 or something of that nature. We'd have to ask all these questions. So I'm going to go through this text by means of five questions. And these all five questions have to deal with this idea of the provision of God and how important that provision of God is in our life. And so the first question is this. The first question is, who will provide? Who will provide? And this is a simple question with a rather simple answer. Um, but oftentimes, simple answers are not the easy answers. God is the one, obviously, right, who provided. Some translations include the name for God in the text, Jehovah Jireh, and that Hebrew phrase is literally translated as the Lord sees. Well, what did the Lord see? Well, the Lord saw the genuine nature of Abraham's faith and provided for him. He saw that. It was demonstrated to him. You know, in a world that's becoming very complex, increasingly complex, one that claims to have all the answers to our problems, God is the one who still provides for us. He is still the one. Like a father who ensures that we have everything we need in life, God desires to provide for us. But the fundamental problem that we often face and wrestle with is that we don't want to go to him for that provision. We think that we can provide for our own selves. We think that technology will provide our every need, and so we go after the latest and greatest technological advancements. And, and, and sometimes they make life not easier, but sometimes they make life harder. We think that government will provide for us, right? Yeah, we just need to hand over our lives to them, and they will be kind to us in return, right? We, at least we think that. We think education will provide for us and all that we need in life. If we just had more knowledge better education, a better job in that sense, and providing for ourselves would be easier if we had more education. Maybe we think that if we have the right friends surrounding us, you know, important ones, influential ones, just the right ones, and when push comes to shove, they will step up and provide for us in that time of need. Or maybe we think that money is a universal provider for everyone, and the more we have the more we can provide for our families, right? Well, technology, government, education, friendships, money, all these things are not evil in and of themselves. But when we seek those things to provide for our needs instead of God being the provider, we become guilty of idolatry. You know, Genesis chapter, excuse me, Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, the very first commandment that God gave to the nation of Israel, thou shalt have no other gods before me. 
It was the first commandment. And you know what? The nation of Israel never got past that first commandment. They got stuck there. Because the problem throughout all the Old Testament was an issue of idolatry. But that's also a problem for us today because when we put anything before God, we become idolaters. And, and the reason why we like these things, education, the money, the friendships, the technology, is because we can control them. We can manipulate them. We can stack the deck in our favor. Because waiting on God to provide for us means that we give total control over to Him. And we don't like that. We like to be in control of things. We like to have a plan for things. I like to have things planned out. I like to have all the contingencies set so that if something happens, I'm ready. I'm ready. We never have problems. My son will always say, Dad, we have a problem. And I always say, Son, there's no such thing as a problem because there's always an, there's always an answer to a problem. It's not a problem. We always we, we want to have control of those situations, control of those things. And Allowing God to provide for us is hard. You know, when Abraham took Isaac up to the mountain, knowing what he had to do, he had three long days for God to provide. Probably the three longest days in his entire life. I mean, you think about it, knowing what he had to do, three days would have been so, so long. And we look at the story from hindsight, we know that God vindicated Abraham, we know that he vindicated his faith, and God truly provided for him, but Abraham didn't know what was going to happen. He didn't know how God was going to do it. He truly had to wait on God. You know, every person here in this auditorium at one time or another in your life, you've had to wait on God to provide, some longer than others. You might be in a waiting pattern or a holding pattern even right now. But the one commonality is that God is the one who always comes through. He is the one who always provides. Now, God might not have provided what you wanted, and that leads us into the second question, what will the Lord provide? So who will provide? It's quite obvious God is the one who's going to provide. But so often the easy answers, we make it hard and we make it difficult. He's the one that will provide. So the second question, what will the Lord provide? That's number two. What will the Lord provide? Well, he provides what we need. That's not always what we want. In this story, Abraham's faith needed to be tested. God provided a test to ensure that Abraham's faith was real and it was genuine. I mean, you think about it. Abraham had everything to lose and nothing to gain. Everything that Abraham had in his life was all wrapped up in the promise of this, what this one son would become. The descendants, the line, everything wrapped up in Abraham's lineage. I mean, if you think about it, the line of Christ comes through the life of Abraham. And now God was telling Abraham, go sacrifice the one and only son through whom the line of Christ is going to come through. I mean, that's a lot to lose. Abraham had nothing to gain. The very nature of faith, though, is that it has to be tested. It has to be tested. How do we know if a person's faith is fake or real? It's tested. The way I know if my students are listening to my class lectures is I give them a test, right? And I either come away happy or I come away disappointed. Happy that, okay, they listened, they got the material, disappointed that they didn't get it, or maybe disappointed because then that makes me look like a bad teacher because I didn't get the information in the first place. But 
neither here nor there. The point is that they have to be tested. Your faith has to be tested. If your faith is going to grow, it's got to be tested time and time and time and time again. That's the way our faith grows. That's the way our faith matures. Abraham's faith needed to be tested. Now, look at verse 12. Look at what says the purpose of Abraham's test was, what he needed. And he said, verse 12, the angel said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withholden or withheld your son, your only son, from me. The most valuable thing that Abraham had was his son. And he was willing to give up the most valuable thing he had because he feared the Lord. Now, fear doesn't mean being frightened or being fearful or being scared of God. It has the idea of an awe, respect, or reverence. In this context, we might say, I know you have respect for God, or I know that you honor God, or I know that you obey God's commands, or I know that you do what God tells you to do. You know, God tested the Israelites on many occasions to see if they would follow his instructions. You remember when they complained coming bad of the wilderness and God was leading them to the promised land? And they were complaining the whole way, not having water, and God provided water. And then they didn't have manna. And so God supplied manna for them. They didn't have anything to eat, so God supplied manna for them. They didn't wait on God. They complained. They complained time and time again. But God gave them exactly what they needed. And if you remember the story of the manna, each day they were to go out and get what they needed. And some of them got a little greedy, didn't they? And went out and got two and three times the amount. And what happens? It rotted. See, God gave them exactly what they needed for each day. God gave Abraham this final test to see if he would follow God's instructions. He gave him what he needed, but probably not what he wanted. I don't think Abraham wanted, if he's got his head on straight and he's got his, his wits about him, I don't think Abraham wanted to go and take his son up on a mountain and sacrifice that son to God. I don't think he wanted to do that at all. No, he didn't want to do that at all. But it's what he needed to do. It's all part of it. Um, you know, I would love to have, I want a nice five, six, seven-speed Corvette, you know? That would be nice. But do I need that? No. I'd probably have back problems getting into the Corvette, slow loaded ground, and then trying to get back out of it. I don't need that. I really don't want that. That's just what came up in my brain in the first service. But not only did God provide Abraham with a test, but something that Abraham needed, he also provided him with a lamb. Because that's exactly what Abraham needed what was needed for the sacrifice, no more, no less, just the right item. The only item that could take Isaac's place on the altar. The Lord may not provide us with what we want, but he does provide us with what we need. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God knew what he had to do. God knew he had to send his son. He knew that the world needed the sacrifice and the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross to take away the sins of the world. Is that what he wanted to do? I don't know. I'm not God. I'll never be that, nor will any of you. I don't know. Did he want to do that? I don't know, but he needed to do it because he knew that was the only thing that would restore that relationship 
that Adam and Eve had messed up in the garden with sin, that relationship that is passed on to us, that sin nature of what Jesus Christ took care of when he died on the cross for our sins. Nobody could take the place of Jesus on the cross. Mankind needed that sacrifice in order for redemption to be secured once and for all. See, when God provides, he gives us what we need, not necessarily what we want. Well, what about the third question here? When will the Lord provide? Well, the Lord will provide when we need it, right? Simple question. God's timing is always perfect. You know why? Because it's his timing. It's his timing. Psalm 27 says this, I would have lost heart unless I believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. You know, sometimes because God doesn't provide for us when we want him to, we often, you know, gripe and complain, don't we? We live in that society of immediacy, that culture of immediacy. When everything is here, we go into the line at McDonald's and we're like, why is this taking so long? I mean, all I ordered was a coffee and, and a biscuit. Why is it taking 10 minutes to get that? What's going on here in the kitchen? Can't they get these cars through the line? We live in that society of immediacy where we want everything here, want everything now. That worldview, those tendencies begin, begin to permeate our thinking about God. We think that if the world does it, then why can't God do that? You know, Israel had trouble waiting on God. They complained at a time or two. Um, the Bible says this passage I'm going to read you in Isaiah chapter 40. And Isaiah chapter 40 is a great passage of Scripture. And Israel is complaining. You need not, need not turn there. I'm just going to read it to you. But Israel is complaining about God, saying, God, why have you forgotten about us? Why have you abandoned us? Why aren't you paying attention to us? And the prophet Isaiah responds to the nation of Israel in a way rhetorically, asking questions. Listen to what he says. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my claim is passed over by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak, and to those who have no might, he increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. God is telling the nation of Israel, saying, listen, my timing is perfect. You think I've forgotten you? No, I haven't forgotten you. You think I've abandoned you? No, I have not abandoned you. My timing, he says, is perfect. As I mentioned earlier, you know, this three-day journey that Abraham took was likely to be the longest three days of his life. He knew what God had required of him, and because Abraham is human, I know the struggle he's going through with the whole ordeal. I'm sure he had thoughts of turning back. I'm sure he had thoughts of trying to fulfill God's commands in some other way. I'm sure he had a, a questions like, Lord, can we do this some other way? Is there another way where I could demonstrate my faith to you other than this way? I'm sure that things like that were going through his mind. It wasn't until Isaac was laid on the altar and as Abraham had lifted up the knife and was prepared to sacrifice his son, then and only then God stops him. Sometimes it seems that God waits until the very last minute to send help, doesn't he? 
It seems like we've got to wait, 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 wait. No, not yet. No. Okay, then God shows up. It's like we feel like he waits till the last, very last moment and shows up. And sometimes it is that way. <laughs> sometimes we feel like, why can't you just show up earlier, Lord? Make my life a whole lot easier. If you just showed up earlier, saw the problem here, and then I wouldn't have to wait this long. Well, then if you didn't have to wait, your faith wouldn't grow. It wouldn't be strengthened because you wouldn't worry about depending upon the Lord. I'm sure that Abraham had a tough time trying to wait. And sometimes it seems that God waits until the very last minute. But you know what? His timing is perfect. After being married for a few years, um, well, for one year really, um, Rebecca and I had moved down to Pensacola. And we had, um, I was getting my master's degree. She was teaching in, in the uh, Christian school down there. And we were married for about a year. We lived in this nice little house in Pensacola, a little 800, I think, square feet or so. Small, had like six rooms to it. It was just us two. Um, it's not there anymore. Now it's a parking lot. So I remember 5504 Rawson Lane. I remember it. and was our first little house. And in Florida, it's always so hot. And it was an older house. Didn't have any, a lot of insulation. So whatever it was outside, it's like it was, it, it was inside the house. And I just remember that. And I remember about a year into our marriage, um, we decided that it was time to start having kids, having children. Um, we thought that that was the, the right thing to do. I mean, we had good jobs. Um, we both were working. Uh, we both got done with the day, the normal time, you know, the 8 to 5 schedule thing. We had uh, good insurance through hers, through school. We had daycare that was provided for families that needed it. Um, we had everything going in the right direction. But God's timing was different. So fast forward a few years till about May of 2004 when we moved back here and I began candidating at churches around the area. Um, we had a little bit of savings, so we were living off that. I didn't have a full-time job. Um, and so we were candidating in the area and we were living over at the old parsonage, still there. It's been transformed into five different things since we've been there. And uh, I remember one morning, I think it was September, or close around to my birthday, if I can remember right, and she came into the room early in the morning at like 5 a.m. and was waking me up, and boy, are you waking me up at 5 o'clock in the morning? I need to get some sleep. Now I get up at that, t well, I get up a little after that time, but sometimes I seem like I get up at that time. But she came in and woke me up, and she said, guess what? I said, what? She said, I'm pregnant. And I said, you know, as any father is, he's happy, I'm excited, uh, you know, this is, this is great, you know, and then I think, oh, man, how's this going to happen? I don't have a job, I don't have insurance, we're living off our savings. I'm like, Lord, really? Now? This time? This timing is not good, Lord. This is not the perfect timing at all. But you know what? God provided every step of the way. And two months before my daughter was born, we were able to move into our first house and brought her home from the hospital, only being in that house for two months. So God had provided every step of the way. But I look back and I say, Lord, we had everything right. Everything was perfect. You just, that was the time. But God's timing is never, is never late. He's always on time. It's always perfect. Even the timing of God's own son 
was in God's perfect timing. Did you ever wonder why God sent his son to die for the sins of the world when he did? You know, why 2,000 years ago? Why not earlier? Or, or, or why not later? Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Now, historians tell us that the Roman world was in great expectation of a deliverer at the time when Jesus was born. All religions were dying off. The old philosophies that permeated the culture were empty and powerless. Strange new mystery religions were being born. Religious bankruptcy and spiritual hunger were everywhere. From a historical viewpoint, the Roman Empire itself helped prepare the world for the birth of a Savior through its system of roads that connected the cities, city to city, Roman laws that protected the rights of its citizens, Roman soldiers who kept the peace, and even Roman and Greek conquests that took the language of the Greek and spread it throughout the known world. And during Paul's day, it's been said that most people knew the Greek language. And since the New Testament was written in the Greek language, there is nowhere that Paul went on his journeys where he was not able to communicate the gospel to the people. That would be a dream for missionaries today. Can you imagine that? Now, here's the thing. All of what I've just reconstructed, you can choose to accept it or you can choose to reject it because the point is that it doesn't matter. It doesn't. What matters is that God knew the exact time when he needed to send his son to take on flesh, to be born into this world. And when that time came, God was not late. God was right on time. You can say, oh, well, I can show you how it was the perfect time. Let me reconstruct this history. Or look what happens after Jesus and look at all these things. So him here was the perfect time. You can argue all you want. You can develop all the, all the theories you want. You can write papers on it if you want to. But the point is, it doesn't matter. Because the point is, God sent his son when God wanted to, when the time was just right for his son. He was not late. He was right on time. And so many times in our lives when we're waiting on God, when we're waiting on him to provide, sometimes we give up the last minute or we give up through the process. If we were just to be wait and wait all the way to the end, God's going to provide. He's going to show up. And you think about what Abraham went through in this situation. God was right on time. But from Abraham's perspective, if I were Abraham, I would think, Lord, could you come a little bit earlier? You know, I mean, all the way to the last possible moment. Question number four, where will the Lord provide? Where will the Lord provide? The Lord will provide in the place of obedience. If you were in the place of obedience, God will provide. Obedience should be faith-based, it should be immediate, and it should be complete. Abraham was at the right place so God could meet his need. We have no right to expect the provision of God if we are not in the will of God. Just like the apostles were in the boat on a stormy sea. They were right in the place that God wanted them to be. After God gave Abraham, his instructions, the text says, early the next morning, he sets out. His obedience is immediate. Early the next morning, really? If it were me, it'd be like late in the afternoon to the evening of the first day, they took, you know, they went. Or halfway through the first day into the second day, I would be wasting as much time as possible. 
I mean, you think about it, put yourself in that perspective. If you knew that you had to sacrifice, I'd be waiting until the last minute. But it says early the next morning, he gets up, gets all the things necessary for obedience to take place, and he starts in the direction that God told him to, and he does it immediately. Immediately. On the third day, Abraham sees the mountain. He tells his servant to stay here. He and Isaac are going to go up and worship. And then he says these words, and we will come back to you. Abraham's obedience was not only immediate, but it was faith-based. Abraham believed God's promise that through his descendants, God would create a great nation. And Abraham also knew that creating a great nation couldn't happen if he didn't have an heir, if he didn't have a descendant. And this is where the book of Hebrews comes in. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17, it mentions the story of Abraham and Isaac. And listen to what it says. It says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises, offering up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. Abraham's obedience was faith-based. It was based in a, in a faith on a God that keeps his promise. So Abraham thought, the Lord told me, the Lord promised that he was going to make a great nation through me, and if I'm going to sacrifice my son, then it can't happen. So therefore, Abraham says, God must going to raise my son from the grave, raise him back to life, because I know that God's going to keep his promise. Hebrews shows us the faith that Abraham had, knowing that God keeps his promise. And if God keeps his promise, you can take that all the way to the bank. You can take it all the way to the very moment, like Abraham did, where he had to sacrifice his son. So even if Isaac would have been sacrificed, Abraham believed that God would have raised him back to life in order to keep that very promise, because God always keeps his promises. His obedience was immediate. It was faith-based. It was complete. Abraham goes all the way to the point of no return. A knife lifted high in the sky, ready to come down on Isaac. And this is when God knows that his obedience is complete and genuine and real. He didn't stop short. He didn't go at it in a slow manner. He didn't, you know, say, okay, Isaac, all right, this is what's going to happen. Let's, let's rehearse this. I'm going to pull the knife up like this. It's going to come down. And he didn't do any of that, or he didn't pull it up really slowly like I probably would. You know, I mean, he went right at it. It was immediate. It was complete. Didn't go about it in a slow manner. Didn't stop short. The only thing that stopped Abraham was an angel, an angel of the Lord, shouting from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, stop. The one who put him to the test. Abraham was obedient and God provided for him. The Lord will always provide for us in the place of obedience. If we're in obedience to him, if we're doing what his word says, if we're trying to follow his will, that he's going to provide for us when we're in that place. That's the bottom line to it. Now, it doesn't mean that God can't provide in other ways when we're out of the will of God. Of course he can. He, he does. Sometimes they get us back in the right direction. But most of the time when we're in that place of obedience... God is the one that's going to provide for us. Sometimes we don't see it. Sometimes we don't recognize it. But the Lord's going to provide in that place of obedience. And then number five, how will the Lord provide? How will the Lord provide? 
know, God's provision is subjective. It's different for every person. You know, because every person's situation is different. God can and does provide in different ways. Sometimes those ways are similar. You might have a conversation with a friend, and they talk about how God provided in this way. And you say, hey, God did the same thing for me too. He provided in, in very much the same way that God's provided. He provided for me. And you have a connection there. Sometimes um, there are natural ways in which God's provided for you. Sometimes it's like, oh, I forgot to write down that deposit in my checkbook. Oh, look, I've got extra money. <laughs> yes, the Lord provided, but sometimes it's in a natural way because sometimes it's just failure on our, on, our, on our part. And then sometimes God provides in ways that are supernatural where you can't help but tell and say there is no way that anything other than God supernaturally could have, could have done that. There's just no simple way, no way at all whatsoever. Um, one story I'll tell briefly, and I didn't tell this in the first service, but um, when we had been in that first house we were at, um, Rebecca and I, after we had gotten here, daughter was a few years old, um, I had a project to work at at the house. I um, had to take down an old um, fence and put up a new one, old chain link, and put up a new privacy fence, about 30, 40 feet of fence. And so I went to the store and loaded everything up in, 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 uh, in the store, purchased everything, and came out and uh, loaded everything up in my truck. And, you know, I had concrete, I had fence planks, I had two before's, I had four before's, I even bought two or three trees, I think, too. I think I put two or three trees in there. You know, I had a bunch of projects going to do it, so, you know, the truck was like, you know, on the back end. And um, what I had forgotten in the whole process is that as I was taking the cart out to load up the truck, I had set my wallet down on the bumper of the truck. And what I, <laughs> yeah, that's what I said. And, but before I set my wallet down on the bumper, I had folded up my receipt and put my receipt underneath of my wallet and laid it down on the bumper. And so I drove home, you know, down the interstate, loaded everything back into the uh, uh, house, outside into the yard, put everything back there. I come back inside, I sit down, you know, load and unload, and that's half the battle sometimes. And then I begin to think, well, where'd I, where'd I leave my wallet? Where's my wallet at? I'm thinking, did I leave it at the store? And, you know, things are going through my mind. Oh, I've got to cancel all those credit cards. I've got a new license and, and all this stuff. And I go back to look in my truck, um, and nothing in the cab. And I thought, where did I leave it? And then it hits me. You know, like you get hit with something, and it's like, Pfft. and you're like, oh, I left it on the bumper. Oh, yeah, because I set it down. I pulled down the tailgate. The tailgate never went back up because of all the lumber and stuff. So I just curious, I went back, because the, the tailgate was still down. It hadn't been put up yet. And so it was still down. And so I throw the tailgate up, and guess what? It's still there. And guess what? The receipt is still there. Not just the wallet, but the receipt is still tucked under. And it's one of those long receipts, you know, because you buy everything at the store. And it was still there. God provided for me in that unique way, probably out of my stupidity, we might say, for not making sure where things go. But, Abra but God provided exactly what I needed in that circumstance. Every person's situation is different. You know, God didn't send an angel with a sacrifice for Abraham. What did God do? He simply allowed a ram to get caught in a bush. 
at a time when Abraham needed it and in a place where Abraham could get his hands on it as well. All Abraham needed was one animal. He didn't need a flock of sheep. He didn't need a, a whole flock to choose from. He just needed the one thing. And if we were to go across the room today, you could tell the unique and special and significant ways that God has provided for, for you. And sometimes those ways are evident. Like in that case, I really think that I had angels riding on top of that wallet and that receipt on the way home. I think there were probably some extra ones there I needed that day. But other times, those ways are hidden. You might have to lift up a few rocks to see how God provided for you. It may not be as evident. I also remember that when I had sometimes additional expenses to pay for in college, um, that God would provide for me. And so I'd get a bill of these additional expenses. You know, it's, there's no such thing as just room, board, and textbooks. You know, if that's everything that you'd ever need in college, then it would be a whole lot cheaper than what it actually is. There's always things you forget about. There's always incidentals. There's always other expenses. There's always this. I feel like they're nickel and diming you to death. So I would get in my mailbox, open it up, and I have a little card in there. It was like a red card or a pink card, it used to say. And it would say, it was not a, a pink slip. It, it, used to, it would say, uh, you are permitted, Jeremy, to work extra hours this week. I was like, great. And then the fella above me, a couple boxes above me, used to always get in the mail when he had the same issues, an envelope in it. And that envelope had a check from home, from mommy and daddy, for the amount that he needed. So I was like, Lord, why can't I get this, but why this? I mean, are you trying to tell me something? I mean, he obviously knew that that fella, whomever he was, I don't even remember his name, needed that. But I needed, I, I guess I needed to work more. I, I, I was providing the needs so I could work more to make the money that I needed to pay for those expenses. So God provided for me in a different way according to my circumstances. You know, for Abraham, God provided a ram. For Isaac, God provided a wife named Rebekah. For the suffering of the nation of Israel, God provided a deliverer named Moses. For the conquering of the promised land, God provided a warrior named Joshua. For David, it was five smooth stones that God provided. For Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it was the fourth man in the fiery inferno. For Daniel, it was an angel to shut the mouth of the lions. For the continued existence of the nation of Israel was a woman named Esther. For the wicked city of Nineveh, it was a missionary named Jonah. For Jonah, it was a whale to spit him back in the right direction. To announce the arrival of the king, God provided John the Baptist to save mankind and offer salvation and life to the world. God provided his one and only son. And then God provided a group of 12 men to carry that good news of salvation to the ends of the earth and to write it down for us in the story of the New Testament so we can read it today. And then God provided this thing called the church. His ordained method of getting the gospel out to the furthest reaches of the world. You see, all down through Scripture, you can count it, and you can see it, how God provided each step of the way, every step of the way. And each situation was different. Some were similar. Some were unique. Some were life-changing. But he provided every step of the way. But there's one thing that we haven't looked at. Think about the impact this whole incident had on Isaac. We've been talking about Abraham, 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 Abraham. Abraham's faith, got it, was tested. But what about Isaac? Think about this. 
<clears throat> your dad, and you go up, what you think is to go and worship the Lord. Great thing. Some, some father and son time, you know. Let's go up and worship the Lord together. And uh, Isaac willingly says that Abraham bound him and put him on the altar. So Isaac didn't fight. He was probably old enough to fight or put up a fight. Abraham was more than 100 years old. So he could have easily maybe wrestled his dad out, but he willingly put himself there. Think about this one incident and the impact it would have had on the life of Isaac. He saw how deep and unconditional his father's love was for God. I mean, think about this. Abraham was willing to forfeit it all, even his one and only son. Now imagine Isaac's frequent prayer, Lord, make me, make me someone like my father. Wow. What his father did and how his father demonstrated. And Isaac was there and saw everything. He was put on the altar. He saw the knife coming down. He saw the angel appear in the sky above and yell, Abraham, Abraham, don't. Think of how that affected Isaac. Think of how that changed the way he looked at his father from that point on. You know, a father's and a mother's acts of faith influence their children immeasurably. They influence you more than you will ever, ever know. Your acts of faith do that. You want your children to stay in church, grow up to become followers of Christ like you, who serve him with their lives? Then be serious with your obedience. Don't take it as an option. Take it as a requirement. Because in that period of obedience, God will provide. And let me tell you, it's a life-changing experience when God provides in a way that your children are there in the very moment to see it. If your kids are there to see it, when God does something great in your life and God provides in your life, you know what that's called? That's called passing your faith on to the next generation. That's what it's called. And the reason why sometimes this faith, we talk about all these children and kids and teenagers leaving the faith, it's because the generation before them, the parents, I myself am included, are not passing the faith down. We're not there demonstrating in the moment to our children. They're not there seeing it happen. When you get an opportunity to see the Lord provide, make sure your kids are there to see it, to be there. Think of, think of what happened to Isaac. His life was forever changed. He saw how God provided for his father the very moment he was, his father was giving up the most important thing in his entire life, in his entire existence. He was giving it up. And God vindicated his faith right there in the moment. Isaac saw it. He witnessed it. Forever changed his life because of it. When you're given an opportunity to have your faith tested, don't try to get out of the test. Be obedient all the way to the end. And if you can, bring your kids with you. Let them see how God demonstrated his provision for you. Or tell them one of the things that's, that's good about the Jewish people is that oftentimes they like to rehearse history and show how God provided for them, how God did this and how God did that and how God did this. 
You know, when God did those great and mighty works with Moses and the 10 plagues and the deliverance out of the Red Sea and provided for them, the salt water turned to fresh water, the manna, the whole nine yards. They were supposed to tell the next generation, and they did. And then they were supposed to tell the next generation. But what happens? You get the book of Judges. The generation before didn't pass that faith on to the next generation. They didn't show the next generation how God provided for them. They didn't teach them. They didn't tell them. They didn't talk to them about it. So no wonder the book of Judges happens. No wonder Israel's in a mess. Because when we don't take the time, when we don't take the time to follow in that plan of God, we want, to get it out of, we, we want to get out of it too, too quickly. We don't want to go through the test. Who wants to go through a test, you know? We don't want to go through the test. But you're waiting for God to provide. And even in this case of Abraham and Isaac, the very last minute God provides. And we say at the very last minute, but that's not true because God provided the exact time that he wanted to provide. The perfect time the perfect opportunity to happen. Abraham took that opportunity, obeying God every step of the way, and God provided for him. That's the it. That, that's all of it. That's plain and simple. Five questions. But the most important question was the first question I asked. Who is the one that provides for you? It's God. God is the one that provides for you. And if we can't get that one simple question right, then all the other questions aren't going to make any sense. Because he's the one that provides. If he is not your worldview, then the rest of your world <laughs> will, will cease. The rest of your world won't make any sense if he is not your worldview. 